0: In his great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes an incident where the main character, Christian, while on his pilgrimage to the celestial city, decides to leave the main highway and follow another path, which to him seemed easier. But this path led him into a territory of great despair, a man who owned Doubting Castle. Eventually, Christian is captured by giant despair and kept in his dungeon. He is advised by those in there to kill himself. The giant said that there was no use trying to continue on his journey. Well, as time passed, it seemed as if despair had really conquered Christian. But then, hope, Christian's companion, reminds him of previous victories. And on one Saturday night, about midnight, they began to pray, and continued to pray almost until the morning. Now, as it was just before daylight, Christian surprisingly broke out in passionate speech. He began to say, What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may be as well at liberty I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then, said Hopeful, that's good news. Good, brother. Pull it out and let us use it. And the prison gates flew open. Friends, promises are powerful. The promises of God are a power are powerful enough to unlock even the greatest doubts in our hearts. This morning we want to think about God's promises and how God in his word gives us promises so that we might have hope. In our passage this morning we're going to see that God's faithfulness gives comfort Especially during difficult times. The promises of God and his faithfulness to fulfill these promises are really the foundation then of our hope. Our hope rests secure in the promises of God and his faithfulness to fulfill them. We can trust that the promises of, we can trust, excuse me, in these promises because, well, because God is faithful to his word. When God says something, well, he means it, and he brings it into fulfillment. Friends, this is that wonderful truth we want to consider of God's faithfulness to his promises and how that gives us hope in the midst of difficulty. Over the last three weeks, we've taken just sort of a brief look at a short book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Haggai. Uh, Haggai was sent by God to preach a particular message to uh, the people of God in a particular time in its history. Uh, when the Israelites were, were really self-centered in their priorities, they were more concerned about themselves than about God. Haggai was sent to turn them uh, tw- toward a God-centeredness in their life, towards a faithfulness to following after God and his encouragement to rebuild the temple. We learn to put God first in our lives by pursuing that which brought God the greatest glory. So in our lives, we pursue God's glory and therefore put God first. Last week, Haggai continued his message by encouraging God's people to persevere in building the temple. They had began to kind of get lazy and and discouraged in their building, and, and Haggai came with a message of perseverance. He said, persevere, continue in what you're doing, that through difficulty through difficult challenges or difficult circumstances, that they face God's God's love for them. The Lord's covenant commitment with them would be what would encourage their perseverance. So so you and I, too, were encouraged to persevere amidst the cloud of discouragement that surrounds our daily lives. So many things that, that we face daily uh, that discourage our faith, that cause us to doubt God and His love for us in Christ. And so now we want to turn sort of this final passage, it's... We considered a lot and then today we're just going to consider just a few verses and really words that are just power packed, packed, dripping with meaning uh, to help us also have hope, uh, to find hope in discouraging times, to find uh, really strength when it seems as if uh, there's no strength to be had. In this final section, Haggai doesn't address the nation as a whole as he had been doing. Rather, he turns his attention to one particular individual. One particular person out of all of the Israelites, one person he's going to speak to. A guy by the name of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Let's look now at Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. December, 20, December 18th. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, kingdom that th- overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In our passage this morning, I want us to consider two promises that we find in these words. Two promises that God gives that I hope will give you encouragement this morning as we find their fulfillment in another leader in the nation of Israel. First, God promises to destroy the nations of this world to make way for a new kingdom. God promises to destroy the nations of this world in order to usher in a new kingdom. And then secondly, God promises to destroy the nations of this world to make way for a new king. God promises to destroy nations and kingdoms so that he might usher in a new kingdom with a new king. So those are the two promises we want to consider. The promise of a new kingdom and the promise of a new king. First, God promises in verses 21 through 22 a new king dumb, A new kingdom that is going to come. Look with me. Really just three aspects of this promise that I want you to sort of roll around in our minds. First, notice that God will shake the heavens excuse me, and the universe as a sign of this new kingdom. So in verse 20 through 21, God is saying something about the universe here. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now you might notice this is really the same phrase we looked at last week. In Haggai 2.6, in Haggai 2.6, there was this shaking referring to how God was going to like literally like shake the earth, kind of like a piggy bank, right? You shake the piggy bank and the money falls out. Uh, God was going to shake the earth and like all the money was going to come out of the world and flow into the temple. Well, this week, it's not quite the same shaking he has in mind. And this time, this shaking is in connection with the destruction of, of really the kingdoms of this world. God is going to shake the the heavens and the earth and this shaking of the heavens and the earth would be a sign that the new kingdom has come. Uh, The the shaking of the universe then would serve just as a reminder as God's people saw it uh, of His promise. This day would be great and it would be powerful and be wonderful for their sight to see. It's not something that they were to be afraid of. But the second thing, the second sort of aspect we see of this new kingdom is that God will destroy kingdoms to make way for this new kingdom. That is, something has to die in order for something new to come. Something has to be destroyed in order for something else to rise. So so not only does he sort of promise to display his power over the created universe, but over, over the nations. He writes there in verse 21. I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms and destroy the strength of kingdoms and the nations and overthrow their chariots and their riders and the horses. Friends, the destruction of the kingdoms of this world makes way for this new kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, God is destroying the people of this world to make way for a new people, a new kingdom filled with his people. Really, if you look and think about the narratives of, of like Joshua and the conquest there in the Promised Land, but what God is doing is killing people to make way for his people. God is destroying nations so that he might raise up one nation for his own glory. In this case, the Lord promises to destroy the nations to make room for a new king and her kingdom. It's important to note that as we sort of see this, this act, it's sort of a five-fold, sort of a fivefold unfolding. Look with, with me in verse 21. It's just going to notice the language here. Uh, since we don't have a lot to look at, I think it's helpful to just kind of slow down and look at what he's going to do. Uh, look at how he will cause things to happen. Uh, I want you to just notice something very clear. Um, the repetitiveness of I am going to do this and I am going to do that and I am going to do this. God is emphasizing something here of His action, right? This is nothing that Zeru. He's not saying, "Hey, Zerubbabel, you're going to do this." Hey, nation of Israel, this is what you're going to do. This is what I have for you to do, right? Which has been the message so long in Haggai, but now it shifts. It it goes on to what they were to do to now what God was going to do through through Zerubbabel. There's no mention of a third party, no powers. That are going to bring this about. No military which will accomplish this. God alone is responsible for providing the scene. On which his representative will operate with dignity and effectiveness. God is the one who is kind of bringing about the events of history. To usher in this new king and his kingdom. God is the one who holds the nations in his hands. You know, While it may appear to you and I as we look out maybe over the history of our own nation or the nations of this world, we're often tempted to think that it's nations that rise up on their own power and ability. But the Bible tells us, though, that that's God who does that. Right? God is the one who raises nations, and God is the one who puts nations away. While it may appear that leaders and dictators and Military powers rise on their own. It is rather a sovereign God who allows these things to happen and it is by His own authority that they are accomplished. And in this passage we see that God will destroy the kingdoms of this world to make room for His final kingdom. A third aspect to this new kingdom is that God will destroy kingdoms like in the past. Uh, Like pilgrim was reminded of the past in order to give him hope for tomorrow. So God reminds Zerubbabel of the past to give him hope for tomorrow. Uh, God uses in this this passage here the word overthrow in verse 22. And to overthrow. Uh, This is a unique word that is often used in the Old Testament in connection with two things. First, God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's a word that's only used in connection with the destruction of Sodom and the destruction of Egypt. And, and so these words would have rung in Zerubbabel's ears, a reminder of God's power to destroy people in evil and wickedness. Just as God had judged the nations in the days of Abraham, so on that day, well, God was going to destroy a nation again to make way for a New nation. This usage is also, we'll see in verse 22, in connection with the destruction of Egypt. Uh, notice what he writes there in verse 22 I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Uh, that language is reminiscent uh, of God's destruction of the Egyptians there in the river. God would destroy the nations the way he destroyed the nation of Egypt. And and so what we see in this passage, while it's gloomy and dark and, and, and quite disturbing, we see that Zerubbabel could stand in confidence that regardless of what the landscape looked like, regardless of what the political sphere looked like, though it may look like Assyria was powerful, God could have... Cyule so could have confidence in God's power to overthrow even mighty Assyria. And we know our history well. God did do that. The Greeks came in and conquered Syria, mighty empire. And we know after that, Rome came in and defeated the Greeks and took over much, and then Rome fell. We see all of this laid out and fulfilled before our eyes, how God raises nations and destroys them to bring about His glorious purposes. But when should Zerubbabel expect this? When, when will this happen? Well, Zerubbabel, we're not really told that it's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't say, like, oh, this is going to happen, Zerubbabel, tomorrow. rather, He just knows that it's imminent, that it's something that's going to happen soon. Friends, what we understand here is that this passage is pointing us uh, to the New Testament. This passage is pointing us uh, to what Jesus is going to do in the coming. So in Mark 13, when Jesus was explicit with his followers, that they shouldn't be surprised when the, the nations begin to crumble. When the world begins to fall apart, they shouldn't be surprised, but it, it should be something that alarms them. In other words, Jesus' first advent served to inaugurate this new kingdom. This is what Jesus says to us in Mark 1:14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The kingdom is fulfilled, excuse me, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when uh, did this passage get fulfilled? Well, partially when Jesus showed up. When Jesus arrived. But we know that this new kingdom is, while inaugurated with Jesus' first coming, we know that it doesn't come to fulfillment until His second coming. And this is why we prayed earlier in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, we, we understand and rest in the fact that God's kingdom has come, but it's yet not fully realized. The kingdom has come, praise God, but we are awaiting that final installment of Christ's Return. And friends, all of this is meant to demonstrate to you God's faithfulness to His Word. You see, God is speaking this 500 or 400 or so years before Jesus. And when Jesus arrives, we see God is being faithful to these promises. that, That the promises that God gives us and His fulfillment of them give us hope and encouragement. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, at least you don't often think of yourself as one. This passage warns us that this world is passing away. That this world is not the finality. You know, if those that point to global warming and the the destruction of the world have anything to true, is that this world does have an expiration day. Where they're confused is that God is the one who will expirate it and it's perfect time. Friends, things you care about one day will come to an end. Uh, this world is not meant to last forever. God promises to judge the corrupt nations of this world. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, I just wonder what are you putting your hope in? What is it in this world that you hold out hope in? Is it your education? Is it your money, your your job, your children? Is it some other security that you have? What security do you have in this world? Do you put hope in the fact that you know the sun will come up tomorrow? That this world will always be here? Do you have a sense of assurance and the security of the things around you? Do you comfort yourself with stuff? Friends, this is what makes Christianity so different from other world religions. Only Christianity puts our hope in something else. Something outside of us. Something outside of, of feelings and things of this world. Friend, Christians don't hold out hope in this world. We don't hold out hope for, for countries like the United States or presidents or politicians. Why? Well, because we know that every kingdom of this world will one day come to an end. As the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world Is passing away. Everything. Friend what is it that you hope in this morning. Hear the word of of God. That those things will pass through your hands like sand. That you will not be able to hold on to them forever. All of your hopes and dreams will be destroyed. And so do not invest in this world. Don't bank on this world. Don't invest. Don't think that this world, but rather, oh, put your hope in an eternal kingdom that will never fade. A kingdom that will never end. So friend, what prevents you from trusting Christ today? Our hope is not in the government or society. Look, we know that society will fail. We know that rules... Lord, we, we give ourselves... To caring for one another. Brothers and sisters, I just wonder, do you hear the warning this passage gives? The warning not to invest your hope in this world. Not, not to put your rest in, in the world around you or in the circumstances of your life. Zerubbabel could have easily done that. He could have led God's people to say, like, look, we need to trust in these things. But God will say, no, lift your head higher to the immediacy. And look further into the future. Oh, Christian, we are citizens of another kingdom. Our home is not here. This world is not our final place. We are merely sojourning in a strange and foreign land. If this world feels more and more at home to you, I want to warn you. As you grow closer to Christ, this world should feel all the more strange. It should feel all the more alien and weird. I wonder, Christian, does your heart love this world? Does your love for this world grow warmer and warmer as the days go by? I pray you would fight that temptation. pray you would Resist the allure from giant despair. I pray that you would resist the allure of the prince of the power of the air that so often entices us to say, you're at home. You're at home. Rest, eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow we will be gone. Don't listen to that. Brothers and sisters, I pray that your love grows for another world. That your love grows warmer and warmer for God's eternal kingdom that will come. And that your heart grows colder and colder for this world. Not for the people of this world, but for those things that the world offers. Pilgrim, I, I just pray you would see that we are on a journey here. That, that we are we're on a journey. And, and and there's so many things that attempt that, that to pull us away. And friend, this morning I pray that if you're filled with doubt, discouragement, despair, frustration, I pray that you would rest in God's faithfulness to bring about His promises in Christ. God has displayed His faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Uh, we don't have to look any further than Jesus to see that God is faithful. That God is faithful to his, pa- to his people. And so that's where our hope and where our trust is. God promises to shake the universe and to destroy the nations. To usher in a new kingdom. The kingdom of His eternal Son. Let's look secondly at the second promise. God promises a new king. God promises a new king. The emphasis so far in our text has really been to make way for this new king, right? With a kingdom comes a king, right? And so why we know that the kingdom of God has ushered in is because the king has come. Jesus makes that clear. But as the context here indicates, God seems to be really speaking of another person, right? As we look at Zerubbabel and we consider who he is in just a moment, uh, we begin to understand, like, is he really talking about Zerubbabel? Is he really talking about him? It seem, seems like he's talking past Zerubbabel, like he's looking beyond him, like like there's someone standing behind Zerubbabel. That's the guy he's talking to. <laughs> Friends, I hope you see that's true. While, yes, there is some immediate fulfillment in Zerubbabel, we see that, rather, Zerubbabel is a type of a king that is to come. So let's look at just sort of three things here that I think are helpful. Like signs, like large street signs pointing us to this new king. Uh, Let's look at them. There are really just three really signs that point us to Christ. First, God says the new king will be my servant. Uh, Look at what he writes there on verse 23. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant that language of, of servant that that God's leader would be a servant is not foreign to the leaders of Israel. God called Moses his servant. He called Joshua his servant. He called David his servant. In 2nd Samuel 3:18 God says this about David, "My hand by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies." David himself is described as God's servant, a servant who will save God's people. This title given to Zerubbabel is really more than politeness. He's not just saying, you no, know, he's my servant, he's my guy. You know, he's my, you know, he wasn't being kind to him. No, he, he was rather making a statement about the promise he gave to David. Uh, one of our members asked me a few weeks ago, like, what's the deal with all the names here? It's Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Uh, why, why is this re- repetition of their names? What's, is it just like to fill space? What's the deal? What's going on here? What's so important about that? Well, friends, it's because the Israelites had been exiled for 70 years. Many of their people were gone. Their families were a wreck. Things were utter chaos. But God in His kindness freed them, delivered them from their exile, and allowed them to return home. And as they sat and considered their ways, as they sat and pondered what God would do, it was their names that reminded them of God's faithfulness. Zerubbabel was the son of Shiltiel. He was the son of... Now, God isn't just saying, look, 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 he's the son of Shiltiel, great, wonderful, you know, that's kind of, they didn't have last names like us, right, that you were identified by your father, right, so that's not like some passe way of saying like, yeah, his daddy's Shiltiel, like big whipping deal, right, that wasn't what he was trying to say, no, there was meaning in this passage, who was Shiltiel? And why emphasize that Zerubbabel was his descendant? Why did Zerubbabel need to hear that a dozen times in Haggai? You are the son of Shealtiel. You are the son of David. See, what he was telling him is that you are the son of the king. You are the son of King David. You were David's great-great-grandson. He was reminding him of the promise he gave to King David. In this short phrase, God is demonstrating his faithfulness to his word by renewing the covenant he made with David. Once again, one of David's children would sit on the throne. David's kids haven't been on the throne for a long time. His grandchildren have not been on a throne for, for some time. In fact, the last time David's children were on the throne, it was a wicked king. And God said, I will never let one of your wicked children sit on the throne. But God is renewing his covenant with David. Friends, you might be familiar with King David. The story of David and Goliath. Or the story of Bathsheba. And. Or the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David was the center person in all of the Old Testament. He was the pinnacle. So as you read your Old Testament, you want to see the the arc, if you will, of the story at David. He is the, the arc of the story comes there. David, the king, is ascended. That king who will deliver God's people from her enemies. Friends, we understand that that David was just a type of another king. Another king who would come. Another king we'll see in a moment. Who is glorious and amazing. The second really sign we see about this new king is that he will be my chosen servant. This new king is not only described as my servant. But my chosen servant. The emphasis here is that Zerubbabel has been picked out, chosen out for a particular role. For I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It was God's eternal purpose to appoint this king to an eternal throne. And this is where we begin to see, like, God's looking past Zerubbabel, right? We're going to see, like, okay, he's not talking about Zerubbabel here. No more than he was talking about David. These sort of messianic prophecies come important as we consider Isaiah, who's writing, you know, 100 years before, Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That language of my chosen servant is unique language to God in the Old Testament pointing us to the new king. And then third and finally, God will give this new king authority to rule over the new kingdom. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shilteel, declares the Lord, and make you, my, make you like a signet ring. A signet ring was a symbol of authority, a symbol of power. Like a presidential seal that sealed on the documents that the President of the United States signs. Right? If it doesn't have that seal, it doesn't come with the same authority as a signature, right? So our current president, Donald Trump, right? used to sign a lot of documents, right, before he was president, right? But those documents don't, like, change the direction of our nation. It's the documents he signs with that presidential seal that now change the direction of our nation. Or when you sign a check, it gives the authority that that check can be cash, or when you swipe your debit card and put in the pin, right? That, that, that's a signature of authority. And so this messenger would have authority over this new kingdom. Almost a century earlier, God had pronounced through Jeremiah a curse on the grandfather of Zerubbabel, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was a wicked little man, he did some wicked things. God cursed him for that. And we are told in Jeremiah that Jehoiakim had a signet ring, but that God had ripped it from him, had taken it, and said, you, "You will not be my king anymore." But through Zerubbabel, God was restoring this. He was once again bringing about the promise that He had given to David that He would have a child who would sit on that throne eternally. Who would this king be? Who would fulfill these promises? Who would be the one who would sit on the eternal throne of David forever? Luke records this connection between Jesus and David in Luke 1.32 when he writes, He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He's talking about Jesus. When we go to Matthew, when we go to that, that genealogy that you always skip over and you never read, right? You see there right in the center of it, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Zerubbabel was the sign that God was not through. That God's promises would not fail. That he would yet restore his plan of redemption. Friends, we see that Jesus is this king that the Haggai prophesies will come. Jesus is the final king, the last one, the one who will serve as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, as Jesus said himself, my kingdom is not of this world. As the Lord promised his arrival to make him a signet, invest him with authority. So we see Jesus as the one who has authority. And friend, we just rest in that this morning. God's faithfulness to bring about his promises. Christian brother and sister, I just hope you're encouraged to see that God is faithful to his promises. A short passage here in, in, in Haggai, written 2,500 years ago. Promises God made that he fulfilled. Friends, all of that is to remind you that God fulfills his promises. Do you believe that God is faithful? See, promises are like light in darkness. You see, it's in the midst of darkness that we pull out those promises and we see our way out. Do you doubt God's promises? Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where I go to prepare a place for you so that you can be where I am. For he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Do you believe that promise when you feel weighed down by your sin, discouraged to quit and give up on Jesus? Do you believe the promise that all that the Father gave to me, I shall never lose? Do you believe that promise? How have you forgotten them? And many more. Friend, I hope you're reminded today that God keeps His words. God keeps His word. We may be accustomed to people not keeping their word, but God keeps His word. His past faithfulness gives us hope for tomorrow. Friend, I pray you take that key called hope out of your pocket lock the despair of your own hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise and glory to you in Christ. Much could be said about you and your glorious gospel, the power you've given us. And Lord, our prayer right now is that your word would bear fruit in our lives, in keeping with repentance. Lord, we pray that a better sermon is heard than preached. For your glory and eternal good, we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we have.